welcome to the Rose Library Presents Behind the Archives. I'm your host, Lolita Rowe, the Community Outreach Archivist at Emory University Libraries, Stuart A. Rose Manuscript, Archives, and Rare Book Library in Atlanta, Georgia. In this first season of Behind the Archives, we explore from many perspectives the question, what is an archive? Journey with me to learn from the insights of our guests and explore what we do at Rose Library. In this episode, I talk with Sarah Quigley, Head of Processing. Thank you for joining us today on the new podcast series, Rose Library Presents Behind the Archives. Now, let's start by you, if you don't mind, introducing yourself to our audience. I'm happy to. Um, First of all, thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here and to talk about archives. That's one of my favorite things. Um, So I'm Sarah Quigley. I am the head of collection processing for the Rose Library. Um, I've been at Rose for um, just over 11 years now and have been um, a member of the collection services team for for all of that time, working with our collections, doing arrangement and description. What that is, arrangement and description or... Um, What we refer to um, in the profession as processing is the series of actions, tasks, and decisions that archivists make to organize a collection and then um, present it to patrons so that they understand what is in the collection, they understand more about the context of that collection, how it was created, who the creator was, what they did in their life how they interacted with their papers or records as they were creating them or as they came back to use them over time, sort of enumerates the different materials within that collection so that researchers can then identify what is going to be the most useful to their research and we can make that available to them in the reading room. And so what career path did you take to work in the archives to get to this point of being head of processing? My career path is pretty typical for technical services archivists. Um, My undergraduate degree is in history, which is not unusual, but also um, people think it's a requirement, and it isn't. Um, It's not even a requirement to have a humanities degree to come work in the archives, Um, but it is pretty typical. Most of us start in some kind of liberal art or humanities program. Lots of us started in history. (laughs) And I did a lot of research-heavy classes in college and um, was sort of quickly really tired and bored by sitting in front of a microfilm reader and trying to unravel, unravel these historical questions. And so I knew that I didn't want to become a professor or move on to the tenure track or anything like that. But the part of my degree that I really loved was being able to tell someone's story. And so I really liked the part where I got to actually write or share what I had discovered and wanted to be in a profession where I got to do that part, but less of the sitting alone in a basement somewhere doing research by myself. So I thought about what options I had to pursue the part of that work that I enjoyed and thought originally that I might do 
museum work. Um, that seemed to be appealing for a lot of those reasons that I described. And I honestly didn't know at that time what other possibilities there were. I didn't I didn't know how to become an archivist. I knew what archives were. I'd been to some. I had done a little bit of research for my undergraduate thesis, but I didn't understand how somebody got that job. Um, so I decided to go to library school because um, it was there. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I don't mean to be flip, but, um, you know, when I it came time to apply to graduate school, I was really tired. I had done this honors thesis and I was like, I don't want to think about school anymore, but I got to do something. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought, let me go to library school and surely that will translate to museums. And then I can decide if I want to pursue another degree in history or whatever it is that comes after that. And when I got to library school um, at the University of Texas, which is also where I did my bachelor's degree, mm. I was assigned to David Gracie as my advisor. And I don't know if you have ever met David, but I'm sure you've heard us talk about him a lot. And mm -hmm. um, his enthusiasm and his love of archives was just undeniable. I couldn't be around him and not understand how exciting archives were, how vital they are to um, our society and our culture. I couldn't resist the 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 love that he had infected me like a like a bug. Um, <laughs> and it so happened that like in my last year of grad school, I was doing a museum project at the same time I was doing an archives project. And I really hated the museum project and really loved the archives project. <laughs> um, I got to work really close, closely with the, um, the gentleman who'd created the collection, the longest sitting Supreme Court justice for the state of Texas. His name was Jack Pope. And I, it kind of dawned on me that if those are the kinds of relationships that you can establish in an archives, if you can really get to know someone on that deep and fundamental level, then that was meaningful. And that was something that I wanted to do. So when I started looking for jobs, I looked exclusively for archives positions. And like many new archivists, ended up in a grant-funded project position for two years. Um, at the time, I thought I would do presidential libraries or political collections. So I ended up um, at the Jesse Helms Center in North Carolina working on Senator Helms's congressional records. Then my next job, it was another grant-funded temporary position, but it was here. And so I came here to Emory to um, process the records of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the iconic civil rights organization founded by Martin Luther King Jr. and a number of other luminaries of the movement, and then was lucky enough, personally lucky enough, that someone in a permanent position left about two years into my project. I've been here ever since. The Rose Library can't shake me. I just <laughs> I just keep saying, just keep staying and staying. <laughs> I mean, that's a good saying. And and let's talk about like the issue or concern about you want to process collections, but how likely are you to get a permanent job? Or because it seems like a lot of the jobs are grant funded. Um how does that, uh, you know, as you're as a young archivist coming out or someone who 
you know, young being not so much age-wise, but young as being just out of the school system, how are you getting into those jobs? Or, you know, like, is it like, oh, no, it's only a year, I shouldn't do it. Like, what's the benefits of that? There are benefits. I think, unfortunately, most of the benefits accrue to the institutions that are hosting those positions. Um, You know, it allows us to get some larger projects done that we might not otherwise be able to complete in the course of our normal work, Um, particularly in academic institutions, having grants is good. The administration cares a lot about your ability to get outside funding. For the archivists in those positions, I think the benefit is in being able to experience different institutions, not necessarily being tied to any one area of the field. But the larger issue is actually, um, in my opinion, that the costs outweigh the benefits when it comes to contingent labor. And it's really a difficult problem to solve. And I don't think that any any institutions hosting a grant-funded temporary archivist position are being um, malevolent. Like, I don't think they're trying to harm anyone. But that level of instability for the archivists and the institutions is really um, a difficult problem to solve. So say your first job is one year and you've probably had to relocate to take it because cities where there are library programs, there are there's a lot of competition for very few jobs. Yeah. So <laughs> you've already probably had to move. Maybe the institution hiring you paid for your move. Maybe they didn't. And then within six months, you barely have learned what your job is. You still are acclimating to the environment that you're in. And you have to start looking for another job. And you'll probably have to relocate to take it. Mm-hmm. And maybe that institution will pay for your relocation and maybe they won't. So, like, just the amount of instability that it creates is it's disruptive for the individual archivist. But it's also disruptive for the institution because that person that you've hired is distracted the whole time. You know, by the time they've grown comfortable in their role, they're leaving. And so I think there are a couple of things that can be done to mitigate some of those problems. Um, One is planning projects that are long enough to make all of that worth it, to provide some stability to the archivist, to really be able to help them grow and develop as a professional for the institution to accrue the benefits of their labor over time. Secondly, to treat them like regular full-time permanent staff and make sure that they have all of the same kind of professional development support and supportive and encouraging supervisors. I think that also really helps. Yeah. I mean, like you um, talked about earlier, archives as a profession, I didn't know it existed. I, my only encounter with it was when I worked at, um, a different institution we had like an open house so to speak for the different departments and my first thought was well I can't possibly be in archives because it's very cold here um you know like I I am a southerner and my blood is very delicate and this coldness is like not a thing that I want to encounter but 
when you talk about the the vital importance of it, I was very shocked that once I got into the archives profession, how much it was a job that I really enjoyed. And and like talking about the collections, like, could you talk more about the SCLC collection? Like, that's always a very cool collection that I love. I love that collection. It's still my favorite collection 11 years later. Um, and you know, it's also like a really good example of so many archival principles. I talk about it all the time. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference records, the collection that we have here at Emory, um, primarily begins in 1968. So the organization was founded in 1957. So there's about 10 years of SCLC's history that from when Dr. King was president, that is part of his personal papers at Morehouse um, or is part of the SCLC records collection that's at the King Center. So it's, this is what we're uh, what we call a split collection, where over time, different pieces have ended up um, in different institutions. So the records that we have here primarily begin in 1968 when um Reverend Ralph Abernathy assumes the presidency following Dr. King's murder, and the collection ends around 2012. Mm -hmm. So what's most surprising about the collection is that SCLC continued and continues to function um, as an organization. I think a lot of people don't realize that SCLC continued in Dr. King's memory after he was assassinated. I think people assume that when they assume that King was a CLC in a lot of ways. And so the assumption really seems to be that the organization died with him, but it didn't. And it continued to do really vital and interesting activism around civil and human rights. Um, and through the 70s in particular, really picked up the mantle of economic justice activism and began um, fighting for living wage and really trying to tackle the issue of poverty in America and particularly in communities of color. And then when you get into the 80s, you see that expand to also include things like um, environmental justice and talking about how poor communities and communities of color are um, typically where the most environmental blight is happening. And one of their big issues in the 80s was um, polychlorinated biphenyl dumping, um, which I don't remember now what that chemical does or did, but it was highly toxic and was being disposed of by the government and by companies in poor Black communities in North Carolina. And so they mounted an enormous... Um, campaign against that practice, which I think ultimately was successful, at least in that area. Um, in the 80s, they're also talking about access to health care as a human right. And as early as 1984, hosting hearings about the necessity of a public health care option and the um, higher rates of health care, um, lack of health care or health care abuses in poor and communities of color. Wow, that sounds so familiar. It's if only we'd so heard that familiar. somewhere before. They were <sighs> they had their finger on the pulse of these issues 
decades before many of us ever even thought of them. And after the collection was processed, we did a huge year-long exhibit that was co-curated by myself and Carol Anderson and Michael Hall, who'd been a graduate student who processed the collection with me. And in 2013, we had, um, that was the year the Voting Rights Act was gutted. Thank you, Supreme Court. It was a year after Trayvon Martin was murdered. The GOP was fighting Obamacare. It, you know, it was a year or so after that had gone into effect. And um, especially in the South, our government representatives were trying to tear it down. And so we had all of these recurring themes and we got to talk to people who visited the exhibit about how old these issues are. Man, they are not new. And organizations like SCLC have been fighting these fights for my whole entire life and longer than that. And so that's one of the reasons why I love the collection so much is because not only is it a history that a lot of people are unfamiliar with, um, it's so relevant to the issues that we're trying to grapple with right now. And so that leads me to my next question. Um, why are archives important? Archives are important, um, not just because they document our history, um, but because they they are the very foundation upon which our rights as citizens rest. So you see that in particular with things like government archives, um, because, you know, in the halls of government are where the laws are passed um, and where our human rights are codified as law or not. Um, and having access to those records, having that documented provides a level of protection and enables us as citizens to have a better understanding of what our rights as citizens are. And when you talk about non-governmental archives, um, I think with collections like SCLC, you see how hard fought some of those rights are for all of us, but also in particular for communities that have been marginalized, especially within the law. Um, and you start to have a better understanding of what it what it takes sometimes to enact your citizenship. And I, I, I hope that that gives people an appreciation for that kind of work. I mean, because you're talking about how even in like the era of 2013, in that time frame, when you're talking about SCLC, it was still being used to teach and to educate. And I, I think that's very powerful that archives are also a tool. Archives are a tool. They demonstrate that we take a lot of things for granted um, as citizens, and we make a lot of assumptions that especially white Americans and white male Americans, that everyone else's lived experience is exactly like our very privileged lived experience. And archives really prove that that is not true. They're not just dusty old things that tell irrelevant stories that we don't care about anymore. Um, they're incredibly vital and important to the moment that we're living through right now. And I think in particular, archives have a role to play, not just as a teaching tool, but as evidence um, as we're living through this moment where 
facts are up for debate and history is under attack. You know, archives are where the evidence lies. There's a reason why in under dictators, archives are the first targets. And what are archives' current role? Like, are there any projects that you're working on to help people in either the archives profession or people who are researchers to learn more or engage with archives? So I know I just said that archives demonstrate that marginalized communities have been marginalized, but also that's kind of not true. (laughs) Um, Archives are um, every bit as susceptible to biases as any other institution. And so for a lot of our history, we have done a poor job of collecting the histories of non-white communities, non-male communities. Um, So we've been making strides to correct that over the last couple of decades, and I think it's getting better. Um, But there are still a lot of weaknesses in the way that we describe that material um, that I think obscures the histories that are truly present in those collections or alienates users because we aren't describing communities in a way that is consistent with how communities describe themselves um, or that just don't allow people to recognize themselves as part of the historical record. And so one of the projects that I'm working on right now that I'm really proud of um, is an anti-oppressive description initiative. And the goal over time is to be able to remediate some of our older descriptive tools and fix some of the language that has become outdated or that was always inappropriate. Um, and we started that project by writing um, a harmful language statement, which is available on our website. So anyone who's listening can go um, and look at it. But the harmful language statement was our effort, our attempt at acknowledging the presence of language in our finding aids and other descriptive tools that is racist, homophobic, sexist, ableist, um, or otherwise harmful to someone because it negates their humanity. The first step is acknowledging. And I think the statement has done that. But in the statement, we also wanted to commit ourselves to correcting that language and hopefully reducing the harm that our description might be causing, that we ourselves may have caused, certainly have caused um, over time. Um, The statement also describes like why that language might be present, including um, some terms have been reclaimed over time by communities. Um, Some terms are used by parts of communities and not by others. Um, Some language is plainly outdated. Um, For example, in a Library of Congress subject heading, there are some, some terms that our standards in the profession that have not been updated as our society has changed. We have some collections that document racist hate groups, and those collections include racist, hateful terms. Um, And we can't whitewash that, but we want people to be prepared that they might encounter it. 
And so the next steps for us are to write guidelines for describing race, describing gender, describing sexuality, um, describing enslavement, um, because we do have a lot of antebellum collections in our holdings at the Rose Library. Um, We're in the process of that right now. And once we have those guidelines in place, then we'll be able to go back and start editing some of the the findings that we've identified as being problematic. And what I hope this does um, is make archives a safer place for people who traditionally have felt excluded from them um, and, you know, demonstrate to the profession that this work is possible. Um, it, it's a lot. You have to dedicate time and resources to doing it, but it's possible and it's necessary. If I am someone who's in library school or undergrad or an MBA, and I'm like listening to this, and I want to pursue uh, this career, what are some misconceptions that I would have to like, um, that would like make me think, well, you know, what misconceptions have people thrown at you or that you've heard about archives? Also, what steps do I need to take once I know that those are misconceptions and I maybe want to move into a processing archivist position? So I think the biggest misconception is just that overall folks don't have a very good idea of what archives are. Um, you know, I think they conflate archives with libraries, which is a related profession, but different. Um, you know, we function, it's not just that we handle a different kind of material. We function at like a different level of engagement. Um, Books are individual, item by item. Um, If we tried to do item level arrangement and description in an archive, we'd only ever process one collection in our careers. (laughs) It's far too much. Um, Could you tell people, just to give them like scale, um, how many boxes are there when you did the SCLC? How many boxes were created? Um, it started at about 1,500 boxes. There were a lot of boxes that just were hundreds of copies of the same program or brochure or something. So we were able to reduce the size to just under 1,000. And then the day after I opened the, literally the day after I opened the collection and processing was finished, um, a staff member called and said, hey, we have a bunch of stuff. Do you want it? <laughs> <laughs> And then we added about 400 more boxes. Oh, 400 more. That's, <laughs> that's right. Just 400 more. Just like, 400. You know. <laughs> so it's, it's back up to about 1,500. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Yeah, no. Because so, I want everyone listening to understand, like, when we're talking about collections, it's not just like a single box or two or three, which it could be for certain, like, collections. But for others, it, it's like a lot of boxes (laughs) and boxes can be different sizes as well. Yeah. The scale of archives is really enormous. (laughs) And I think people, the other misconception is I think people think it's like Giles from Buffy or whatever. You just like are in a room with a bunch of like leather bound books. (laughs) And (laughs) unfortunately it didn't happen like that. I was really hoping like that's one of my heroes, but I digress. (laughs) I think a lot of people are really hoping that that's how it's going to be. And then they're 
a little surprised when it turns out that actually um, jobs and archives are extremely public facing. Um, you don't get to sit in your dusty basement loving and cradling and hugging your old stuff that is esoteric and that only you love. Um, you know, even those of us whose jobs are primarily technical and collections focused, we're always thinking about the user. We are, are, we do our jobs so that the material can be used, which is another misconception. I think people think that in archives, the material gets locked away. It's not accessible. It is not meant to be used. The idea is to protect it forever. Um, and in order to do that, you can't use it. But really, archives are for everyone. They are your legacy as a citizen of this country, as a member of your community. Um, and we want you to come and see them and interact with those collections and use them for whatever reason, um, because you're interested, because you have a research project, because you're a genealogist and you're interested in your family history. Um, and so that's why we do the work is to make that material accessible. Um, and then also thinking about like having to interact with people. Um, at the Rose Library, we have a very busy reading room. We all do reference here. Um, and also most of us have some relationship with our various donors. So a lot of my job is also about connecting with the people who gave us the collection, many of whom also created that collection. It's their personal papers. And it can be really an emotional experience to give your material to an archive, to consider that it's then publicly available. People are going to read your diaries. People are going to know your business. Um, and most of our donors have a lot of anxiety about that process. They want to understand what happens to the material once it's here. They want to know what um, what my job is in relationship to that collection. So a lot of my role um, as an archivist is also about peeling the curtain back. Um, I care a lot about advocating for archives. I really want people to understand what we do, what we're all about. Um, and so a lot of my time gets spent talking to our donors about what happens to their collection when it's here. And so if I wanted to pursue this career, what advice would you have for me? Well, <laughs> if, if you let's let's take it sci-fi, right? So we travel back in time and we meet the young Sarah Quigley. What would you tell her? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's 2020, anything is possible, but what would you tell her as you know, as she's trying to decide, oh, I do want to become an archivist, what route would you say? So okay. <laughs> um for better or for worse, a lot of archives jobs require a master's degree, um, usually in library or information sciences. There are not many accredited programs that specifically give you a degree in archival science. Most of those mm -hmm. programs are within library schools. Other jobs will let you get away with like a master's degree in a subject specialty and experience. Um, there are a lot of conversations in the profession right now about how that is really gatekeeper-y. And I, I tend to agree, but for 
better or for worse for now, um, a secondary degree is a requirement. So, um, you know, you're going to have to think about graduate school. I would have to tell myself that archives are not dusty old rooms where you get to sit by yourself. <laughs> so it's not like in The Mummy when Evelyn is in the room with the, okay, you're just checking. It's not yeah. like that, you know, and, <laughs> you know, there's a reason I bring it up all the time. It was because baby Sarah was deluded into thinking that's what my job was going to be like before I got to graduate school. And thank God for David Gracie, who pretty immediately was like, you need to get over that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good thing to have good mentors who are advocates and like you are an advocate for, for what we do in the profession. I mean, I, I wish I had encountered, you know, even though I went to USC, I wish I had encountered more people. Like my first encounter with someone with archives, again, said, you should be in archives. And I said, no, no, thank you. And yet here we are. And it's one of the best decisions I ever made to actually pursue a career. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I think baby Sarah would be proud of you right now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, Sarah Quigley, uh, thank you again for um, coming to our season two episode of Behind the Archives. You know, we're just out there trying to educate people and and just have a conversation. So uh, thank you for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Behind the Archives is produced by Lolita Rowe and Nick Twimlow. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor. Music created by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library. Jennifer King, director of the Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to Sarah Quigley and to the Emory Center for Digital Scholarship. Please join us next month when I'll be interviewing Randy Gu about his work as Rose Library's assistant director of collection development and curator of political, cultural, and social movements collections. For more information about Rose Library and our other podcast series, Community Conversations, and Atlanta Intersections, please visit us online at rose.library.emory.edu and follow us on Rose Library's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find Behind the Archives and our other podcasts on all your favorite podcast feeds.